This is a special God Pod which was recorded as part of our McDonald Lecture Series 2016. The McDonald Lecture Series is a series of lectures generously sponsored by the McDonald Agape Foundation. We hope you enjoy it. And we have as our uh, uh, main guest today, Professor Stanley Harris, who has been lecturing to us earlier on this evening on, um, on the significance of Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, for, for the ministry. And uh, we we're going to discuss a little bit of that today. And we also, we're also joined uh, here by um, uh, Mark Knight, who is our tutor in theology here, who has uh, been working on a, a, a doctorate on Bonhoeffer for a number of years now as well. And um, we also a number have, of years, yes. What's that? <laughs> a number of years. Yeah. A number of years. More years than you care to remember. And uh, we also have Dr. Uh, Reverend Dr. Donna Lazenby, who is our tutor in uh, spirituality and apologetics here at St. Melitus, and soon to be director of St. Melitus Southwest. Hello. So, um, Stan, if I can begin just with, um, yeah, you've been talking a, a lot about the, the, the practices of prayer practices of word and sacrament as the crucial parts of the ministry. Uh, just reflecting a little bit on Bonhoeffer's experiment, if you like, of the Finkenwalder sort of seminary that he set up, this community that he set up to, um, uh, to uh, train people for the ministry. Um, how, how significant do you think in, in the modern world a kind of rediscovery of the religious life is? Because uh, there are various movements to try to uh, form new forms of monastic life in the kind of modern world to say make sort of church more kind of monastic in feel and uh, do you tend to warm to that kind of approach or um how significant is that re- rediscovery of the monastic vocation do you think i i have the view that no monks no christianity but the um uh the new monasticism movement in the in the united states is um too busy making itself up to be monastic. Uh, uh, it, uh, it, takes, uh, it takes centuries to learn how to do it because community is hell. Um, uh, so uh, so uh, uh, I think that um, uh, knowing how to um, at least borrow some aspects of the discipline of monastic order is um, uh, certainly um, a, a resource, but you have to be careful uh, not to think that uh, that's going to be some magic solution that because it's not monasticism. The, um, um, in general, however, I think that the curriculums of our seminaries, at least as I know them in America, uh, separation between theology proper and pastoral formation has just been disastrous. And um, um, how the kind of issues of, uh, of daily prayer um, uh, and 
you know, you don't want to invite um, in America when Americans start praying, they use the word, Lord, we just ask you. And um, uh, I, I, the way to stay away from that just is to use the BCP. And uh, I, uh, I, uh, I highly recommend that as, as um, a way to have you understand how praying the same prayers day after day form your tongue and creates habits that are crucial for how you um, uh, uh, understand how uh, words as Bonhoeffer was suggesting, uh, form you as minister. So that is the finding of the proper words. Yes. And the proper words, in a sense, are given to us to the past. I mean, I think it, what you say about um, our kind of maybe fake monasticism that we sort of try and re, reinvent without necessarily drawing on and using the, the sense, you know, the Benedictine rule took quite a long time to actually emerge. It was not just Benedict coming up with it. It was all kinds of other rules that were before him. Actually, they're still working on it. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's, it's always a kind of a, an ongoing thing. But, um, but that sense that you, you, know, you, you, you cannot be separated from those traditions and practices that have shaped you, whether you know it or like it or not, in the community that you've been part of. And actually to try and escape from that by avoiding those words can sometimes be a bit, um, you know, you, you throw away the heritage of what you have that has shaped you and can continue to shape you in that way. Right. Mm. Right. I get, I mean, partly my reflections on these matters, uh, I, I serve, I, I'm retired, but I served in, at, in the Divinity School at Duke University, which is a Methodist institution. Um, what you discover about people going into the Methodist ministry that it's not the ordination of gays that's threatening, it's adultery. And I wish I could uh, attribute that to lust, but most Methodist ministers don't have that much energy. Uh, uh, it, it's, um, it's, uh, it's loneliness. And um, and the loneliness has everything to do with the fact that you're serving the people who think you don't work for a living and, uh, and they don't know what it is you do. And, um, and so you learn to start hating the people you're serving because, I mean, being in the, being in the ministry today is like being nibbled to death by ducks. Um, uh, I mean, since you don't work for a living, they can ask you to do anything. And after a while, you begin to, to hate them and hate yourself. And the only, the only escapes is to move into the family, but no spouse ought to have to love another spouse that much. Or, or, or to do CPE and put on a white coat that shows that you're pretending to be a doctor and, um, and therefore have an actual profession. Um, so the deep difficulty is people going into, it's not just the Methodist, but to the ministry in the mainstream denominations in America are, are not, are unable to claim, as I was trying to suggest, why it is that they've been set aside to preside 
and preach. Um, um, and our lives depend on it. Our lives depend on it and how to recover that. I was intrigued by your statement, community is hell. And I think we kind of laughed because we all recognize the truth of that. Um, so how on earth do you do it? Um, it's very interesting. Within the monastic um, uh, tradition, of course, friendship, you have to be very careful with. Because if, if a monk becomes friends to a friend with other monks to, um, in, in a way that excludes their relationship to other monks, uh, something's gone wrong. But the way I do it is I depend upon friends uh, to tell me um, when I'm wrong. And uh, friendship is, I think, um, a absolutely crucial, um, uh, crucial practice to sustain uh, people in the ministry uh, and any of us uh, in the kind of um, callings that we have um, uh, that we have discovered God would have us follow and um, it's um, uh, and friendship is um, between people who are willing to tell one another the truth. And um, that's not easy because, I mean, where, where do we lie the most um, readily? In marriage. And why do we lie most readily in marriage? Because we're afraid if we say to one another the truth that now has dawned on us, we're afraid we will lose the intensity of the relationship that with which it began, which the truth will now call into question. Uh, so, it, so how to be a people who have learned to be truthful with one another because without it, we die. And I think Bonhoeffer was very, I mean, where he was talking about the, how, um, Courage becomes um, seen as uh, stiff-headedness or something like that. I mean, we, I think that that's one of the most important things um, we do is help one another um, discover the um, language that we are so tempted to use to hide from ourselves who we are. Mark, listening to um, the presentation on, on, on Bonhoeffer tonight, did you recognize that? Is that how you, how you would read uh, Bonhoeffer as someone focusing our attention as ministers back into the simple practices of word and sacrament and that sustain community life in that way? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, th I think that, that, that sounds right to me. And I, I think, um, you know, there's... I think there's always an interesting tension when you read Bonhoeffer on the church right the way through his life, that he's, um, 
as Professor Havas has said, he's desperately struggling to, to articulate um, the way in which the church is to recover its visibility. Um, but also, um, along with that, and especially for those in the ministry, comes this sort of, um, I don't know, you might call it the sort of invisible visibility, which is um, the disciplined um, form of life, the practices of prayer and obedience, daily prayer and obedience, that um, are always bumbling, you know, bumbling along um, beneath that, that vocation to word and, and sacrament. Um, and I think that, that that connects in with, with um, what Professor Havas was just saying about um, friendship um, and courage as well. I mean, I think there's one episode in Bonhoeffer's life that very dramatically um, demonstrates it, and it's, it's the sort of two seasons that he spends in Germany as part of the um, confessing church, which was the portion of the German church which, after Hitler becomes chancellor and consolidates his power, um, resisted uh, Nazification, essentially. And the first season, about a nine-month period, 1932-33, um, Bonhoeffer's in the ministry. Bonhoeffer has friends. Bonhoeffer is teaching theology in Berlin, um, but also appears to be, at least to some extent, a bit of a lone wolf. Um, they are pamphleteering. They are coming up with statements. They are drafting confessions. They're fighting a war against um, a sort of rival wing of the church. And um, the way that I would sort of read that episode, I mean, af after nine months of this, Bonhoeffer, all of a sudden, almost without warning, takes a job here in London as a pastor to two expat German congregations for the next couple of years. Nobody understands the decision he's made. Um, Bart writes to him saying, you need to be back in Germany on the next ship, or if not that one, the one after that. And, you know, Bart, Bart, completely confounded by this decision. I think Bonhoeffer was completely exhausted um, as a result of that first intensive um, attempt to be a source of resistance within the church. Two years later, when Bonhoeffer goes back to Germany, he goes back as, as the um, founding um, uh, member of Finkenwalder, this community that um, structures its life very deliberately around the practices of confession, around morning and evening prayer. Um, and I, I think it would be fair to say that it was that sort of diet, that habitus, that um, set of practices that, I mean, Bonhoeffer believed that that was uh, what would sustain um, the ability to, to resist, the ability to be a distinctive counter-cultural um, community. Um, so not the lone wolf, not um, the sort of gargantuan, heroic, um, cognitive effort of finding the right words, etc., but actually inhabiting a certain form of life in order to be sustained by the Spirit to, to manifest an alternative. The confessing church was a mess. <laughs> that too. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it was just, I mean, the debates between the Lutherans who worried about the Bethel Confession um, um, violated uh, the two kingdom view and all that. I mean, Bonhoeffer was really tired of that. Yeah. In terms of the, the visibility of the, the church and um, the virtues that make the, the, the church. Visible. I guess one of the ones you, you've written about a fair bit is, um, is uh, that opposition to war, the, the non-violence of the Christian. And of course, Bonhoeffer, towards the end of his life, is caught up in this great sort of um, dilemma uh, of how to, uh, whether he is to be involved in this, this plot to assassinate Hitler. And that's what leads to his, his death. How do you read that episode in Bonhoeffer's life? And how do you see his 
um, if you like, it's his decision at that point um, to go for something, uh, you know, to, to actually t take part in that. How long times. you got? <laughs> 15 minutes. Uh, <laughs> right. Um, just briefly, um, Bonhoeffer's uh, involvement in the plot uh, is primarily, we know primarily from Betke's biography. And uh, the, to the extent that Bonhoeffer was ready to assassinate Hitler, uh, we just don't know. Uh, and uh, people have assumed that Bonhoeffer gave up his commitment to nonviolence uh, in terms of the assassination of, of Hitler. But um, uh, it's, a, it's a highly disputed matter. And um, I, um, um, I think that um, in the sections on guilt and the ethics is, is oftentimes seen as his confession that he's going to do something that he's going to be guilty for. I don't know how to read it. Uh, I think that uh, people will do, I mean, most Christians today will go to great lengths to make sure that you can't use a life like Bonhoeffer to suggest that Christians have a problem with war. But damn it, Christians have a problem with war. <laughs> and it's um, uh, no matter what Bonhoeffer's final um, disposition was, in the plot, it's nonetheless the case that Bonhoeffer would insist that Christians have a problem with war. I say I have a modest ambition before I die, which won't be that much longer, and so I've got to hurry. I want every American Christian to know that we have a problem with war. Um, uh, they, they don't have to be pacifists, they don't have to be just warriors. They just have to know that killing the name of Jesus is a long way from what it means to be a disciple. And uh, so I, I worry about that display of Bonhoeffer in the plot to say, I don't have to take seriously an opposition to war. Um, Professor Howes, thank you so much for your paper. Um, I've got... A couple, I'm going to be sneaky and have two-part question, if I may. Um, one of the themes that particularly struck me that was coming through from your talk was, because I think the church finds itself in a real quandary, it's one of the challenges of our age, is the extent to which we attempt to make ourselves culturally accessible, held alongside this calling to be an alternative politic, um, to show ourselves as this distinctive community that actually reminds the world how to be truly the world. And so I wanted to ask you, if I may, two questions. Um, how do you think the contemporary church can wisely balance the call to be culturally accessible alongside the need to remain a distinctive people? So in our forms of church life and worship, many of us here, probably myself included, are involved in forms of pioneering church life that are precisely endeavoring to be culturally accessible. And I'm aware we tread a fine line in terms of whether we start to concede or dissolve some essentials, which is not the heart of our calling. 
And then secondly, related to that, this question of what's actually happening in the world, um, I have a, a theory that I'd love to test out on you, which is that the greatest challenge to the receiving of the gospel in the world currently is not nihilism or atheism, as we would so often be told, but is rather a form of amnesia. I feel that the country in which I live, many people actually do live lives based on gospel-shaped values, but have simply forgotten from whence they came. And I think that you've diagnosed it perfectly because the church is failing to speak well and therefore to evangelize clearly and therefore becomes invisible. And therefore that leads on to the question of, do you agree it's a case of amnesia above all things? And therefore what is the role of the prophet in the life of the contemporary church? Very sneaky, two questions in there. I think that was five questions. Oh, there probably was about that. Yeah. I was going to say I counted an unholy trinity there. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, you, you put that so well. Uh, how does the church remain culturally accessible? And Yeah, because I, I battle with this daily, and I'm sure lots of us do in this room. How does the church... You painted such a vivid picture, and I think it's completely true, of the church's calling to be this alternative politic within the world that shows another way to live. And yet so much of the life of the church currently is caught up in, in what feels like a real need to be culturally accessible in its forms of worship, of church life. And I wonder how we hold that balance without tipping in one direction. Well, I hear that. When Bill Hybels at Willow Creek Church, which is a church growth church, just in Chicago, was asked why they don't have a cross in, um, in uh, their um, uh, auditorium because you don't have a sanctuary. He said it gets in the way of the gospel. Um, uh, uh, that's just the bottom line of people that if I weren't a pacifist, I'd kill. Um, <laughs> Ouch. The, um, Donna, don't say anything more about your church. <laughs> we love Jesus. Um, so it depends on what you think is cultural accessibility um, uh, to look like. Um, uh, I take it that um, anyone that um, comes in, I mean, I'm, I, I'm not much of a Christian, but I'm in lifelong training trying to figure out how to be one. And therefore, I'm, I mean, I'm not culturally, I don't find Christianity culturally accessible. After all, I'm a Texan. Um, uh, and, um, uh, and so it's how, how, how to, I, if, uh, last night at Theos, I, I reminded us that the most evangelistic movement within Christianity was monasticism. And how that happened is when people saw these people and what they were doing, they said they're happy. I got to figure out how that happened in a world like this. So uh, I think that how we as Christians um, uh, embody the absolute glory 
of what it means. I mean, what, being a Christian gives you something to do. Most people today don't have a damn thing to do other than to have more. So um, that what it means for us to be culturally accessible, first of all, means we're probably not. And that's how mission happens. It's how, you know, I, I remember Paul Ramsey, a great theological ethicist that taught at Princeton for many years, had a fundamentalist uh, father who was a Methodist minister in Mississippi uh, who was, was, every church he went to, the congregation was reduced. And Paul said, his father said, that that he that that always meant he had had a good year. <laughs> I, so I don't I don't I don't think reduction of numbers is necessarily an end in itself, but it's not necessarily a bad thing if it's done for the right reasons. So um, uh, who knows what's going to happen in terms of where we are? Um, I think the suggestion that. The world um, uh, is amnesia, has an amnesia, uh, is very suggestive, but I think you've got to be careful with the presumption that a lot of people have values that are Christian, but they don't know it. Nietzsche says, when you get Christians talking about values, you can be sure they no longer believe in God. Um, um, values are subjectivistic preferences for which there's very little you can argue about. What I t and and but there are, I mean, there, I think we are coming to a time for something like this. I want to know why people who are not Christian continue to have children. Just something basic like that. Why do you, why do you want to have a kid? They're a pain in the ass. Um, 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 uh, I mean, they're going to take, I mean, you know, I, I, I call uh, the yuppies strike me as, I, as of the monk, I call them the monks of modernity. They'd rather have a boat than a child. And uh, therefore, and what that indicates is they're very sure that they don't have anything worth passing on to a future generation. I mean, people forget that having children is an extraordinary gesture that life is purposive. And, and, there, and we have something worth sharing. Um, um, I think just something ba basic like that. Uh, I mean, there could be a lot of other kinds of things you could, um, reasons you could give for why you're having children. They're fun. <clears throat> um, uh, <laughs> they're a hedge against loneliness. Get a dog. They, um, uh, is to please the grandparents. Uh, um, uh, I mean, how, how, how to do work over these very, very basic matters, I think, is a part of what um, uh, we are going to have to return to as part and parcel of our community. If I can ask... Um, another question before we go into the um, questions for the audience. I guess a lot of the desire to make church uh, culturally relevant, 
accessible, whatever word we use. It's, it's, it's I guess, driven by that desire that you, you named in your talk about, uh, well, that fear that the church is going to not survive, um, which Bonhoeffer didn't have to worry about too much because it was fairly established, but, but it's, a, it's an ever-present thing, uh, in, in, certainly in Europe, where we, we know church is declining. What, what do you say to those who fear the church will not survive? Where two or three are gathered together, and there is the Spirit of God. <laughs> and um, that um, we, um, uh, I think that we're not sure what the future, I, I, I think we're in a very transitional time. And we're not sure what Christianity is going to look like. And that's probably a good thing. And it's silly to get terribly anxious about it because this is about God. And um, I, um, uh, 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 what surprises God's going to bring, I don't know. I was preaching Sunday at St. Andrew's uh, at uh, Aberdeen. Um, and um, uh, Isaac Palamu, who is a South um, South, uh, from South India is the rector there. And they're probably 90% of the congregation at St. Andrew's Aberdeen were Nigerians. The church, the, Episc uh, the Episcopal Church of Scotland is going to be black. Is that great? <laughs> <laughs> is that great <laughs> um, so uh, who knows what yeah. God's going to do it always strikes me that there are those who say that um, you know, immigration is eroding the Christian character of Britain and I always think actually immigration is the great hope for the Christian yes, character yes right. um, Mark anything do you, you want to sort of as, this is your chance Bonhoeffer man <laughs> to ask Professor Howas what do you want about Bonhoeffer um I will ask publicly the question I was very excited to ask privately, which is, um, what was the best thing that Bonhoeffer ever wrote? Um, yeah, I, 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 for me, discipleship was just a, uh, that account of the Sermon on the Mount is uh, irreplaceable, I think. But um, as you and I both have deep commitments to Sanctorium Communio, too, uh, I think um, was, I mean, Bart called it a miracle because he didn't understand how a dissertation could be written like that in the school of Harnack and uh, Zayberg. But um, uh, it, it, was, uh, it was remarkable. It's very interesting to think about Bonhoeffer's life. He, he had the arrogance of class. And you... you you might want to be critical of the er of someone having the arrogance of class, but it saved him from being taken in by the Protestant liberals or the Nazis. Do you think that's right? Sorry, run that by me once more. Well, I mean, <laughs> that he came, I mean, that, that he came from the Vons. Uh, meant that he was part of high culture Germany. Mm. Mm. So 
he knew the Nazis were thugs. Yep. That was a class judgment. Mm. But it was transformed through his Christian um, uh, commitments. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, he, and he was able, I mean, Harnack would have dinner at the Bonhoeffers, but that didn't mean Bonhoeffer agreed with him. And that, and that he had that kind of, um, of ability to stand against the tide, I think was very much a kind of class matter that nonetheless served him being a good Christian. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think the cultivation of his family, the circles that they swum in, definitely, I mean, you only have to look a number of Bonhoeffer's siblings were involved in the resistance too. It was virtually a family business. I think there was something about the, the family. But that's one of the great tragedies of the, of the whole episode as well, is that there were lots of other aristocratic Germans who, who did who, yeah, and who didn't necessarily sympathize with um, Hitler or the Nazis. They looked down their nose at him and, and their, their values, um, but were paralyzed by inaction. It's one of Bonhoeffer's great frustrations in the ethics, is sort of railing against all these people that thought as he thought but did nothing. And so there's this question, what, what tipped him over into action? Um, I, mean, Bonhoeffer, I mean, Bonhoeffer insisted when he came to England for the two years, he had to have the piano shipped. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was, um, I mean, there were, there, I mean, he had standards about life <laughs> that he was about not to compromise with. When he was studying in Tubingen, he used to send his clothes home to be laundered in Berlin. Right. Right. Do you not do that yourself? <laughs> I feel that way about New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. <laughs> well, we've uh, reached the end of this little part of the evening and, and our Godpod discussion, so thank you very much to all of, us, all of you taking part in this. was Godpod, a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.